It is the morning. I have woken up today. It is like every other day. I have nothing to do with myself, but it is important to maintain a routine. So I get out of bed like I do every morning. And I sit, sit up on the side of the bed. I do not want to disturb Maria as she sleeps. So I stand up. I adjust my clothing to be more comfortable. I take my right hand and put it on my left shoulder and uh, straighten the shirt and then I take my left hand on the right shoulder and straighten and then I reach behind and pull the shirt down from behind so that it is flat against my body and then I and then I reach around to the uh, to my underwear and I pick the wedgie out of my butt crack and uh, then I I quickly shuffle my feet, you know, just a little, little run in place, get the blood pumping. But I try to do it very quietly and uh, I do not want to disturb her, so I, I, um, but I, I want her to be comfortable, so I, I make the bed. The bed, the bed sheets must always be tightly fitted. Uh, so I take the sheets and I, and I stuff them under the mattress. Increases. I flatten the sheets and uh, I don't want to touch her while she's sleeping. She, she may shift a little bit, but you know, I try to make her comfortable. And, and uh, you know, it is 4 a.m. Uh, you know, I can start to hear the birds coming, coming awake uh, by, the, by the seaside. And I, I go to the window and I look down at the sea and I, I see my, my boat, Beethoven. I wonder if today would be a good day to, to take it out for a spin. I sometimes I can't help but think COVID-19, 19, that is the number of slams that I have collected over the course of my career. And I wonder if that number is all that I will ever be able to accomplish. Perhaps there will never be tennis again. Perhaps when tennis comes back, when we are able to play again, I will be, I will be an old man of 36. And some younger man will have taken my place and, and 19 is where I will be stuck. I won't be able to win the French anymore. I was going to win 13, 14, 15, but no more. It has been taken away from me. And as with everything, even though I tried to, to get the best of Roger in the end, it does not seem possible. And I feel like something has been taken away, but I also know that I must accept that this is the reality. I must be satisfied with how things came out. It is not something I can control. Although I do wonder if maybe this virus came from Roger, you know what I'm saying? Much like Rafa Nadal, who gave me a call and left a message from his quarantine situation in Mallorca, Matt Rashford is here this morning in Sydney to check in, see how things are going. 
What's your What's your morning routine like, Matt? Hey, yes, I like um much much like Ruff Nadal, um, followed by my name. That's um that's that's cool. Um, my morning routine is um just snooze for the maximum number of times um, possible, and then and just like recalibrate in my head. Okay, like um you were gonna. Um, give yourself a facial and wash your hair and um, write a letter and it's like progressively all of those things get um, put aside and then it's just the bare essentials okay you can grab a banana and run out the door if you get up now mm. go and then I finally do and then um, go to work and that's cool don't even have time for a coffee and I get it like yeah so it's morning routine is not much of one it's just find a way to get up yeah and you're you're a person who actually goes to work which uh is un, is unusual in this day and age I mean and I I personally haven't gone to work in I think over a decade you know not regularly anyway not not in an office space I work at home so yeah yeah my routine tends to be this weird blend of waking up and getting into work like all all at once so you're well set up for quarantine um but yeah it's well it's nice if you still got a place of work to go to because you get to get out of the house so um I enjoy that and we're ha- we yeah. having some kids come back to school today, actually. Because um, New South Wales is letting students, um, 25% of students per day, attend school. Yeah, that's awesome. So one day of school. Yeah, for each, each kid week. gets one day of school. They're on a roster. You think we're gonna we're gonna see any tennis tournaments that uh, that run like that? Just have like twenty five percent of the players show up one day. I mean, I've been playing tennis. You can, and it's legal to play tennis actually. Um, socially, I guess the problem is having everybody around, like all the officials and media and players in one spot. But um, it's, it's you know it's one of the sports that has less risk, doesn't it? Yeah, and a lot of the risk can be mitigated more easily. The problem with pro tennis starting again is just that it, the sport's so international that you, it's hard to imagine everybody around the world being cleared to travel to the same place, you know, based on like how their local situation is. So while tennis like functionally makes a lot of sense for like some pro restarting you know, as we kind of deal with this disease, it's it's going to be a bit tricky. Like uh, this week I was watching, just yesterday I watched the first pro tennis match I had watched in almost three months. Um, I opened up my Tennis Tragic Journal. Like I, I had almost forgotten that that was a thing. <laughs> you know, like earlier this year, like we all started like logging all of the matches that we watched. We did, yeah. And it was, you know. But there's no matches to log anymore. 
Right, so I opened it up and it was still like, I still had like a mark on the last page, you know, which was, it was like sometime in, um, I guess it was March, so it was only about two months. Um, it was like, I was watching WTA Lyon when Sophia Kennan won the title. Mm. Um, which doesn't feel like it was that long ago. I mean, it was only a couple of months, but to not watch a single match. And I've like turned the TV on and, you know, the tennis channel here is like playing mostly classics. And uh, yeah, I think I sent, I sent you a message about this, but one day I turned it on and they were showing the, the Roger Rafa Australian Open final from 2017. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing. I had ever seen but I couldn't I couldn't stay with it I watched like a game and a half and I was like I can't it's just gonna be it's too emotional for me oh wow it's too emotional um, yeah um, and so yesterday I, I turned on this there's this exhibition tournament in Florida it was just four players you know everybody is like isolated like there's one umpire no ball kids it's basically just like a, it looked like a tennis court in a parking lot somewhere <laughs> you know, I'd love like, to see the players like pick up their own balls and stuff yeah yeah they were doing that and that there was a time where they were kind of um, you know like a like Tommy Paul was like framed a forehand and the ball went out of play and um, you know and then but they didn't realize that they had lost the balls so they were kind of like where's that where's that extra ball um, you know they just kind like, of like, uh, just like normal stuff. tennis <laughs> Just, just like normal tennis. <laughs> uh, it would be it'd be even funnier if like one of them was like, all right, I gotta go run outside, and then he like goes out of the fence, and, like you know, goes and like rummages through the bushes to try and find yeah the yeah. ball that they lost. Um, but anyway, it was like I, I turned this on really late at night. It was just a replay of the match, and um, and it was nice to watch. But it you know I think part of the thing is just that without fans or pageantry or any kind of real stakes um feels felt a bit hollow you know um i think i'm ready like i'll take what i can get now like i'm eager to, to to watch some some sports but um you know it just wasn't <laughs> it wasn't all that compelling you know um and that that's the thing like compared to watching that that australian open final replay which you know it's like I'm, when I when I turn that on, I'm like teleported back to this time in my life. I remember where I was. You know, I was sitting in Fed Square in, in downtown in, in Melbourne CBD, like on the ground with my friends watching on a on a big screen. And um, like I don't know, it just you know, it just had this this feel of like incredible importance. And um, and it you know, it, it's not that the sport is any different really I mean it was being played by two of the greatest ever but um, oh they played that match. I don't know oh you watched the match live in 2017 in Melbourne in Fed Square yes okay yes. so it's one of those matches that like I think I'll always remember where I was for it um, I don't know if, if there are matches that you know stand out in your memory like that but yeah some Especially watching with my grandma, who was a good tennis watcher, mm. in her place. Um, but, um, yeah, I can really, this is really nice, Dave, to see the emotional connection you have with tennis. And 
the struggle and the beauty of it. Um, how much you enjoy it and how much you really live it. I can, I can see. Yeah. That. And it's, I don't know, I guess I'm in a place where I'm not, I don't find myself missing things too much. I'm trying to just stay in the moment and, and appreciate what I have in my life and kind of, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting around thinking, ah, oh, how much this sucks that we don't have live tennis. It was just like actually seeing, you know, getting these reminders was like, oh, right, that is something I really care about and miss. But I don't know, do you, are you able to, um, like, have you watched classic matches at all during this period? Or ten have you watched any tennis? I know you're playing some. Yeah, no, I haven't. I, I've been working on my game. Um, I've just gone back to coaching. Uh, getting mm. getting some coaching, which has really um, re-enthused me. But I haven't. I've, I, um, I, I pick up the odd bit of tennis news, but there hasn't been a lot. And I've... Because of the whole The Last Dance documentary, I've been getting into NBA instead. Hmm, interesting. And um, I've really done a deep dive into the Linsanity era um, because the New York, the New York Knicks, and the Madison Square Garden are like, you know, I think everyone is looking for, um, you know, what replays to do or where should we like we have to go into the archives and play some classic games and the Knicks have chosen to go into Linsanity and play all of those replay all of those games and then do interviews with Jeremy Lin and his teammates from um, that time so I've really looked at that I've given a long hard look at that and wished that oh I wish it could continue and that he stayed at New York and just appreciated what an amazing time that was how good he was yeah just thinking about that puts a smile on my face uh i i kind of want to like call up my dad and, and interview him about it because um, <laughs> it was you know the joy for nick's fans is so rare um but it's like anything you know you come to appreciate what you have a little bit more you know, it's punctuated. Like, sure, the Knicks haven't won a championship since my, my father was a young man. It sucks, I guess. <laughs> but they're still, like, I have a lot of great memories and a lot of, you know, like, my father and I have bonded over the Knicks over the years. And, you know, just to have that, like, little moment, you know, that, that month or so where just out of nowhere this kid suddenly was doing incredible things and, like, dueling with Kobe and, you know, like, winning games with buzzer beaters. It was it was sensational, and even, you know, it couldn't last. I mean, nothing ever does. So, Dad, yeah. uh, tell, me, tell me what you remember about Linsanity. Yeah, what I remember was this. The Knicks were really bad that season. Maybe not as bad as they've been recently, but they were really bad. And Mike D'Antoni was the coach, if you remember. Right. And uh, Mello was out. I forgot the reason why I think he was injured or he had surgery on his knee or something like that. And uh, 
So Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Lin was uh, picked up on a short-term contract, and he got into um, some of the games, uh, you know, for, in garbage time, a few minutes here and there. And then there was a game, I have it written down here. Um, you just keep it by your desk so you, you always have reference, you can always remember. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a little piece of paper in my pocket that I can pull out at any time and look at it. Yeah, it's like the photograph of Jeremy Lin that I keep in my wallet. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it was a bad season for the Knicks, which sounds like almost, it sounds like every season. I mean, so they had gotten mellow, what, maybe the year before? Well, it was 2011 that they signed Jeremy Lin in December, and then um, he got his big shot in February of 2012. I think that's that's what it was. And um, and the first game he really got in, he did pretty well. He scored uh, double figures and got five rebounds, five assists, something like that. And everybody mm. thought it was just a fluke, you know. And he was so shocked and surprised himself. What I remember. Uh, but then D'Antoni, whose job was on the line, uh, and he didn't have Melo, and actually didn't really want to have Melo, as it turns out, um, started playing Lynn, and then he went off. He went off, he scored 38 points in another game, and I think it was against Miami, and then he scored uh, double in the 20s, the next few games, and then there was one game, I think it was against the Nets, not sure, I mean, this may be incorrect, but uh, where he hit the buzzer beater to win the game. I don't know if you, rem- right. you remember that. Didn't he Didn't he have a couple buzzer beaters? Didn't he beat the Lakers on a buzzer yes, beater? Yes, it was the Lakers he beat on a buzzer beater. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And and the garden went wild. That That's the thing. It, 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 it brought life into the garden in a way that hadn't been there since the 90s. Yeah. I, just thinking about it gives me like a warm and fuzzy feeling <laughs> yeah. physically. Like I just, it was, it's such a delight. And I, I do think it's probably enhanced in a way because of how dismal the Knicks have been over the years. Oh yeah. In fact, what, now when they do the these shows, retrospective, best games, best times of the Knicks, they're always, they're showing Jeremy Lin now. Although for a while he was a pariah for the uh, yeah, he was persona non grata because he left. Right, but now now yeah. they're starting to do it, and uh, they're going to bring him back, I think. And who knows what else? Do you remember uh, the conversation we had when we when we heard that Jeremy Lin was going to the Houston Rockets and the and the Knicks yes. weren't going to resign? Yes, in fact, I remember this so well. Uh, Marsha and I. Uh, we were driving back from a trip uh, to visit a cousin up in um, Massachusetts or New Hampshire, <clears throat> something like that. And as we got to this Connecticut town, the town that was right outside where they had that horrible shooting of the children. Do you remember that? Newtown? Yes. We're right outside of Newtown. And, you know, I was thinking about Newtown and how bad it was and how sad it was and all the scary stuff. And then. A news report comes on uh, where I was listening to some sports thing on the radio, and they said Lynn had been uh, tra- had not been traded. He had been signed by Houston for this huge amount of money. 
It was like they signed up for Yeah, it was a poison pill deal. They, they, they made it difficult for the Knicks to match, but the, the Knicks could have still matched. They could have. They could have, and they should have, because he was still their best point guard. You know, I remember where I was when we had that phone conversation about Jeremy Lin, because for me it was like when JFK got shot. You know, it was like, it was like this incredible, painful betrayal. Yeah. I, I was at the Whole Foods uh, in downtown Austin, the flagship Whole Foods in the parking lot. And I was so furious that I was shouting into the phone. <laughs> like, I, I just couldn't believe it. And also, because part of it was that they, the Knicks lied about it. They, yeah. The team said repeatedly that they would not let Lynn go, that they would match any offer. Yeah. And, you know, even if it was ultimately, I don't know if it was the wrong basketball move to let him go. I think that's when they got Raymond Felton, who's, you know, not a great point guard, but they had a good couple of years with him, uh, including their only playoff run, their only playoff win <laughs> in, uh, in two decades. Yeah, I just remember being furious and it felt um, like looking back on it now, it feels almost like a, a loss of innocence. You know, like I just, I knew, I knew then for real that I could never trust Knicks again. Not with James Dolan, but maybe not ever. Like, why do I place my trust in, in an organization that doesn't have my best interests at heart? Um, why am I so attached to the Knicks, you know, this team identity? Well, you know what it is, David, and I've always uh, theorized about this, that our ta attachments to certain teams, whether they're good or bad over the years, has a lot to do with imprinting in our childhood. You know, yes. it, you know imprinting like in birds, that kind of thing, where, right. where yeah. ducks will follow the first um, person, you know, person or bird or whatever. Whoever is there when the, the ducks are uh, either born or, you know, are first become, I don't know if ducks can be aware, but when, when ducks first notice, you know, a moving object, they follow that. Mm. And, uh, you know, you were at, you were at my, uh, sitting at my knee watching the 1980, uh, early 1980 Knicks, and then the transformation yeah. into the really excellent team that they were going into the 90s. They were the probably the main Eastern Conference um, competition for the Bulls uh, with uh, Patrick Ewan. And of course, you remember the, the day that Patrick Ewan was, uh, the Knicks got uh, the lottery pick and they were- Yes, that's one of my formative sports memories. And I screamed like crazy and you got, I think you got scared. because I got scared, I hid under the bed <laughs> when, when, when the Knicks won the, the draft lottery, I had to hide. Yeah, I remember. Because I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. Um, <laughs> it is. Um, I, lo I love the notion of uh, of imprinting. I, I do think a lot of this goes back to childhood, and, and my my connection to the Knicks is is deeply rooted in my connection with you. I I feel like I can never leave them, even though they will break my heart over and over again um, in perpetuity. Um, but you know, something like the, the nice thing about the Jeremy Lin memories is it also illustrates that it doesn't, you know, it's not always like winning a championship that, that gives you that, you know, no, that good it was, feeling. It, yeah, they weren't going anywhere anyway. Uh, but yeah. except for, for the hope 
that we had finally found a point guard who could be a star. Yeah, yeah. And uh, which has not happened since. It just it just feels with the Knicks like it's just always going to go wrong, and that's probably not true. But um, I had a question for you, Dad. What would you rather see uh, next year? Like, would you rather see the Knicks make the Eastern Conference Finals on some kind of dream run, or would you rather see James Dolan sell the team and the Knicks end up in the lottery again? I'd rather see them make the Eastern Conference Final. You know, I'm not a young guy, so I don't know how long it would take for new management to turn the team around and make them uh, really good. So I want to see right as soon as I can. I want to see good basketball. Uh, all that crap about Dolan and everything. All right. You know, there are a lot of teams that have had terrible owners, stupid owners, that kind of stuff, and still have done well. If you ask me to name them, I can't. So. <laughs> I don't even know if what I'm saying is true. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd rather see. I want to see a team go to the Eastern Conference. I want to see a team go to the championship. Uh, I want to see a team win it if it's possible. Well, yeah. I mean, look, this, this is why I picked the Eastern Conference Finals because it felt like a more realistic target. I mean, it doesn't. It's not that realistic, but it's also not a championship. Trading a champion, like often we talk about championships as if it's the be-all, end-all. And that's all we, you know, like we would trade that. But see, I th I would rather see Dolan sell and have another year of misery, because I think there, because it's I think it's cultural, and I think culture matters a lot in organizations. And um, until you have, I mean, it is possible that the Knicks will get lucky in a draft and end up with somebody who is, you know, is on that level, and that changes everything. But I think you still need you still need people throughout an organization creating you know an environment where people can do their best work and I, I think now like the Knicks could ruin you know the Knicks would ruin almost anybody um, you know the Knicks got Giannis I don't think I'm not sure that they would be able to put the right pieces around Giannis to um, to win a championship ESPN in the U.S., uh, they started broadcasting Korean Baseball League games this week because uh, the Korean Baseball League is one of the, I think it's the first baseball league in the world to start back up, and they're, they're playing in front of empty stadiums. But they're like, we've got to broadcast something, so it's going to be the Korean Baseball League. Yeah, and it's, I think it's kind of awesome that, you know, I'm sure there are, I mean, you know, Americans... Some Americans love baseball. I mean, my friends who are really into baseball, like, live and breathe it. And I kind of go in and out with baseball. But it's just that desire to see live competition and, like, read, like something with stakes. And I'm like, sure, I'll watch the Korean League. Like, I, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like starting from scratch. Like, I get to decide who I like, who my team is. You know, I have no affiliation. Um, so... Yeah, I'm thinking I might, might try to catch a game this week. Cool. Yeah, I love that. Um, baseball, hey, I've also, I've also been um, looking at some YouTube channels. Some, like, mm. there's some American guys that run really good YouTube channels where they go into this, the statistics and intrigue of baseball and other sports. Um, mm. And there's one channel that 
looks at the Seattle Mariners. Okay. And then just from their inception to getting like the license for the city and building a stadium, because they were one of the last teams to come to the league, I think, in the 70s. And um, then they had the Ichiro um, mm-hmm. era. They never won a championship, they never won a World Series, but they did, like, a lot of funny things happened. Yeah, the Mariners famously, like, they had the best regular season in baseball history. I think they won 125 games one year, and then the Yankees beat them. Yes. For me. Yeah. (laughs) They have this intense rivalry with the Yankees. Yeah. Yeah, I still remember that first year that they played in the, 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 the first year they had a wild card playoff series in baseball the Mariners and the Yankees played and I was a freshman in college and like you know living in New York City and uh I remember watching at the end of my uh like you know the the little like common area on my on my dorm room hall and uh yeah the Yankees they lost in in five games and I I just like I couldn't take it I like totally exploded with fury (laughs) like and I think the people on my hall were like, that dude is crazy. Um, so Did you have- I've learned to, to control that a little bit over the years. But I've, I used to get really upset when, when my teams would lose. You know, it was something completely out of my control. At that time, did everyone want the Mariners to beat the Yankees unless they were a Yankees fan? I mean, I think because it was New York City, there were a lot of Yankees fans around, but also a lot of Mets fans. I mean, within New York, that divide is very stark. And for some reason, we don't have a lot of people who are both Mets and Yankees fans. Um, it's just like it's just like one of those things you're su- supposed to choose sides. So, of course, I, I sort of don't. I mean, I will root for the Mets when they're good. But if they meet in the World Series, which they did in 2000, I root for the Yankees. It's just... You know, they're my they're my main team, okay. and I don't follow the the Mets as closely, but I do keep an eye on them, especially because so many of my close friends over the years have been big Mets fans. Um, but even my dad, like, was a was a Mets fan when I was a kid. In the '80s, they were really good, and then he kind of switched to the Yankees later. Mm. Um, and he grew up watching the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, so he's been all over the map with with the New York teams. And is there a certain type of person who's more of a Yankees fan or more of a Mets fan? Yeah, I mean, it, it's always just totally generalization, you know, but um, Yankees fans, um, you know, it, it like, I feel like there's almost like this, this sort of corporate, um, you know, stuffier um, kind of like Manhattanite um, kind of vibe to Yankees fans. Uh, whereas the Mets kind of like are like more working class and that's and it's that's such a generalization because you have fans of both yeah. all over the spectrum but um, Yeah, and like yeah Mets tend to be more the suburban team. I think and Yankees more the city team Cool. The Mets play out in Queens actually they, they play where they play City Field is right across from where uh, the US Open is held at, in Flushing Meadows So what do we what do we do now? There's no we're making a podcast about tennis, but there's no tennis happening. There's no tennis. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, 
I, you know, when, when this first started, I was suggesting things like, oh, well, we, should, we could watch some random classic matches or maybe, uh, maybe like invent a tennis card game and play it against each other or... That's um, like I've sort of I've started to get curious like get interested in maybe like start like designing a tennis game again um and uh yeah I don't know I like I do I do kind of want to watch some classic matches it just never feels li- like I just haven't chosen to do it you know even though we're all tennis tragics it feels like we're kind of um yeah I don't know it just doesn't doesn't quite have the same appeal to me for for some reason yeah, um, I was interested in some some classic matches. I watched a bit of Goran Ivanovic's title at the at Wimbledon. Mm. Pat Rafter in five five sets in like the year two thousand or something. Two thousand and one, maybe. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. And he'd got a wild card, he'd been injured the previous year, so he was... Um, why did you Why you end up watching that particular match? Um, I liked Pat Rafter, I watched him a lot, and he, he played serve volley, and he was nice, he was a nice guy. And so was Goran yeah. as well, they were just two fun guys, and it was, you know, billed as a classic match. I didn't watch the whole match, I just watched some highlights. Um, actually, I think Goran did like a, an Instagram interview about that. Maybe that's why I got onto it. Where he was reliving, reliving it all. But we, yeah. We, um, we could like watch, we could pick a few matches to analyze yeah I would I would like to do that I think we just have to like take the initiative and decide that we're gonna watch a match and you know kind of stick to it and I think you know my life has been kind of weird because I've been moving and it's been a bit of an odyssey for me and things have been changing a lot so it's been hard for me to like focus on this at all Uh, and you know and now we also we have time zones uh, to deal with so you know, it's uh, you got up for a 7 a.m. call, which I appreciate, and uh, but and you know, it's it was 4 4 p.m. here when we started, um, so it gets a little tricky to line up our times. Um, it does, but, yeah. and it's true, everything is topsy turvy. Like, I'm trying to do my masters via Zoom, hmm. which is quite annoying. Yeah, I mean, I was um, I was hoping we could do more of the um, the like voice message thing. Yeah, um, you know, I think we like I think when we did that for um, the Dreams Come True Girl episode, it really came out well. And you know, like I think it's just like finding the sweet spot. You know, just doing it like two or three minutes, like just getting a little thought down and not not overthinking it. You know, just like. Just recording whatever's on your mind that's related and uh, and sending it off, you know. Um, I think that could, that would be a, a good place to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for the reminder on that because that's a, it's a nice way to do it. Just a um, a little voice journal entry. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And then we don't have to be on the we don't even have to be on a call to do an episode necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So um so yeah, we should try that. And I you know, so this to tell you a little bit about the more about the Hercotch Paul match. Please. Not that there's really all that much to tell. <laughs> like um, you know, Hubie Hercotch won the first set four one. They were playing fast four tennis. Um, which I don't love, but you know, I guess they're they're kind of just trying things out. Um, the broadcasters were like talking up the the camera angles because they had like some camera on a like on a I don't know what you call it a gurney, some kind of crane that they could like move it around. But I never like when the camera moves during a match. You know, I want a kind of fixed perspective. I think it's weird if the camera's moving. Um, so I kind of think that the the broadcasters were grasping at straws there. And uh, anyway, Tommy Paul won the second set for love, you know, he started to play well, but he was looking really injured, you know, like, I feel like it's one of the tough things is going to be for the players to manage their health, like, especially if they're just playing randomly competitions. Um, But apparently, you know, there's going to be a women's competition. Hercotch won the third set, but it wasn't neither of those players. They they were like the losers of the round robin, and then the the championship was between Kitsmanovic and Riley Opelka, which I didn't stay up for. Um, but there's there's a women's version of the same thing in Florida in a couple weeks. It'll have like Danielle Collins and Amanda Anisimova, and I kind of think we're gonna see more like regional stuff like that. You know, there was one in Germany that was similar. Um, they're talking about doing one in Southern California. So anywhere where you have a bunch of players, you know, kind of living in the same space, you know, like probably be one at like some palace in Monte Carlo. Mm, Um, That's interesting. So, uh, I think we're going to see more of it and I, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see if they could like find ways to make it feel like more of an event, you know? I mean, I get that it, it just is what it is and it's, it's kind of interesting just watching the players take care of their own balls and all this stuff, but I feel like they could, you know, they, t- they talked about how the players had like isolation boxes or whatever, <laughs> which were really just, you know, like benches. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I feel like they could just make it a, they could make it into a drama, you know, like use, use lighting and, you know, like and design a set and just like make it feel like a, you know, like these two gladiators coming out of, out of quarantine to, to do battle. Um, I just think it could, they could make it into compelling television. Um, so anyway, I hope that we see more of the, some more of this stuff over time, and you know maybe there'll be something to watch that's live that we care about. That would be cool. Recently, I dreamed that Rafael Nadal retired during a third round match at Roland Garros see it clearly. He was playing against Italian Marco Trungaliti, and having won the first set 6-4, Rafa found himself down 6-3 in the second set breaker, one point away from a level match, and Rafa could no longer continue. He went to the chair umpire and ripped off his sweaty headband. Omas, he said, shaking his head. Maybe it was Marco Cecchinato. Scoreboard said Trungaliti. I could see the face, and I think it was a different Marco. So these two Marcos have different stories. Marco Trungaliti is known as a fortunate and grateful fan favorite. He had lost 
in the 2018 French Open qualifying rounds, but was a last minute entry when another player withdrew. This particular Marco drove 10 hours from Barcelona with his 89 year old grandmother in tow, vacationing from Argentina, posting endearing photographs of the group on the internet. And this Marco then defeated the much maligned Bernard Tomic in the first round. Years later, he even made the time to like an Instagram story by the tennis tragic. But more importantly, Marco Trangoliti was brave enough to stand up against corruption in the sport, to blow the proverbial whistle. He was contacted by match fixers and offered a proposition, but he decided to work with the authorities instead to bring them down. And despite the risk of being scorned by his fellow players, he chose to do what he thought was right. And the other Marco's story is quite different. Maybe even the opposite in a way. He was caught in a match-fixing scandal, Marco Cecanano, and he was suspended for 18 months. A successful appeal brought him back into the sport, and he had this dream run to the French Open semifinals, taking down Marco Trangoliti along the way. And Cecanato's play was sensational. He managed to take down Pablo Carina Busta, David Goffin, and in an epic five-set quarterfinal, he beat Novak Djokovic to advance to the semis. But could we allow ourselves to enjoy his run, given that he was a known cheat? The TV commentators would remind us of his fall from grace, and I remember Jim Currier suggesting that there was no way Cecanato should have been allowed to compete, that he should have been banned possibly for life for, for the crime of fixing the sport, of, of throwing a match, of violating the integrity of the sport. And I really like Jim Courier, and I think that if Jim Courier believes that the integrity of the sport was compromised, I'm willing to sympathize with that argument. And yet, here was this Marco coming out of nowhere, going on the run of his life, and defe defeating some of my favorite players in the process. And I, I just, I love that out of nowhere deep run at a major. It's, it's a really special thing to watch when somebody just catches fire at the right time and you can tell how much it means to them, how, you know, the impact on their life, the money, the, the status, the ranking points, the attention, all of a sudden playing on center court. It can be incredible. And, I, and Marco Cecanato, you know, he had this this real competitive fire and brash attitude. I mean, he, he believed he could beat a guy like Novak on clay. So this guy was a cheat? I mean, so what? He just beat Novak Djokovic at a major. It was hard to reconcile these feelings, like this sense that I should be judging somebody, that I should take a stand against somebody who, who did something that I believe is wrong, and then just my desire to enjoy, a, like a... Uh, this this crazy story and the play of this athlete. Anyway, in my dream, Rafa quit during a match against somebody named Marco of Italian heritage. Trangolini is actually Argentinian. And I thought he was Italian until after I looked him up after this dream. So as far as my subconscious was concerned, they're both Italian. And I'm pretty clear it was the third round at Roland Garros, so if you've been following my hopes and dreams on the internet, you'll know that you may actually want to put money on this. 
because I'm maybe having visions. Of course, instead of taking it as a premonition, perhaps we should examine it as a reflection of my subconscious. All of a sudden, I found myself having recurring dreams about great tennis players retiring from matches. What does it mean? What does it mean that I'm suddenly dreaming of Rafa's retirement rather than Roger's? Like the two Marcos, they're kind of defined in opposition to one another. And in my personal narrative about tennis, how I experience tennis, the story I have that relates my life to tennis, Rafa is an antagonist or a villain even. And I, I'm troubled by his relentless desire to win. He, you know, he seems almost like he wants to crush the hopes and dreams of the players that I love and root for the most. Like it's almost personal against me. And so I, I delight in Rafa's defeat, which is very occasional. And through all this, and having the perspective of being a sports fan for most of my life and seeing players come and go and knowing how sometimes when people get under my skin, that's something to appreciate. I know that once Rafa goes, I will miss him very much. The thing is, Rafa's presence gives me something to care about, even if it's against somebody. I care more about watching because I want to see Rafa lose. And yet when I imagine Rafa retiring, I don't feel sad, but I also don't really feel happy or elation, like I would when I see him lose. I got to watch Gofen take him down at the ATP Cup this year in person, and it was such an incredible performance because to beat Rafa, you have to bring your absolute best. You have to have one of the days of your life and be a great player to have a chance against that guy. And I got to see it in person and it felt so special. And one day, Rafa Nadal will hang up his rowdy singlet and sweaty headband and stomp off into the night. It's just something that's going to happen.